Hello everyone, welcome back to the Quixotic Topic. I'm your host, Daquan, and today we have the Immaculate... Jackson Mead. Yeah. And since, Jackson, you know this is a uh, experiment in progress, I want to try a little something. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing fine. A little mm -hmm. tired, but can't complain overall. Agree, I'm the same. I am also tired. Exams are starting up. Anyway, Jackson, uh, prior to the podcast being recorded, you said you wanted to talk to me about a plan for society. Yeah, it sounds a little bit uh, nuts, to be frank about it. Alright, so what exactly does this plan entail? Are you talking about, like, uh, massive economical restructuring? Uh, all of the above. We're really talking about a human movement here. You know, plenty of revolutions and changes in the past have been done by economic change, political change, uh, change in population in the case of some more extreme groups. Um, but in our case, I'm looking for a fundamental uh, shift in the way that we think about each other and about society and uh, the role that work and serving others has in that. Okay, okay. And so I guess that means that you're firmly in the camp that we aren't necessarily thinking about each other in the way that we should? Uh, yeah. I think it's... Uh, there are some things we take as givens that I don't think are givens. I mean, one of those is this whole concept of, uh, you know, in shorthand, stranger danger. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's, there's a difference between your inner circle of friends and then people you've never met before. Right. And the way we approach each other and regard each other on that level uh, is fundamentally different. And that difference allows the divides that exist in society and exist among class and racial differences to continue to exist. Mm. Um, and it's not just that. It also means that the fundamental structure of society, the inequality, the economic changes, and the political changes are governed by this kind of stranger danger uh, premise. Ah, okay. So, with the whole concept of a stranger danger, I guess, I mean, uh, one of the main reasons that that was put into place, at least from my knowledge, is because of um, the rise in the kidnapping of children, right? Right, but I'm not really talking about the kidnapping of children or stranger danger as a thing that we tell our children. Of course, you're going to tell your children don't walk up to a kid who's, no, not a kid, an adult who's uh, in the back of a white van offering popsicles. Like, that's just a bad choice. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm saying the way that we treat each other in passing, the way that adult humans treat each other, uh, is, is fundamentally wrong. The way that child humans treat other child humans okay. is fundamentally wrong. Alright, well, I mean, child humans, honestly, are... I would assume the only way they really treat other child humans is either yelling at each other or... Well, I mean, yeah. I guess in that case, it would not really be the best, seeing as that children usually are either screaming at each other or hitting each other. Right, but that's only if there's... There is actually some degree of a relationship between children if they're screaming at each other or hitting each other. Okay. I mean, that is a relationship. I'm talking about the people with whom, you know, they will not engage, and it creates mm -hmm. social isolation, and that's another portion of what I'll be talking about. Okay, cool. So why don't you give me, like, a, I guess, overall outline, or maybe start with, like, the easiest to initiate part of this plan. Part of this plan. So I think... What we should look at primarily is a study called information ecology, and I think it's particularly poignant right now in today's political and economic background. Um, information ecology is where we take the information that's around us, the information that we have access to, and we treat it like it's an ecosystem, mm -hmm. where each idea within that ecosystem is a living being, and then more persuasive ideas are considered more predatory. Okay. So, more... Then the truthfulness 
of those dictates whether it's more of a kind of infection or whether it's more of an animal or plant. This is a pretty extended metaphor, but the idea here is that lies poison the ecology. They hurt the environment. Okay. Um, so it brings particular attention to another societal construct we've come up with called uh, white lies. Mm -hmm. This idea that, oh, you can tell a small lie and that's okay. And it is, to some degree, in the way society is structured, but maybe that points out some more fundamental flaws. The fact that you can poison your environment without having to care mm -hmm. uh, is something that we see physically in our environment as problematic. Okay. And so we should treat our uh, information ecology the same way. So, uh, before we continue, so those uh, lies, for example, are those um, a danger because you said that the more influential thoughts are known as predaceous, right? Yeah. So are you saying that these lies are like pretty much the top dog predators and in terms of like... Lies are engineered to be top dog predators. Okay. We are introducing foreign predators into the ecosystem. Oh, okay. All right. I see what you're saying. All right, um, continue. It, it's the same. It, it, we could almost consider the most persuasive lies, the most pervasive lies, uh, conspiracy theories, mm. you know, the ones built up of all these small lies into big lies, we could even call those like bioweapons that we're using. Um, you know, the, These are informational weapons that we're using against our ecology. Okay. And when it comes to speaking to each other in small community discourse and in the larger discourse of you know a country, a world, anything like that, um, we need to treat them the same way. Okay. So I think, and you can see how this ties into my stranger danger thing, yeah. right? Like if we don't trust each other on a certain level, then we can't create an information ecology that's truthful. Because the lack of trust creates divides between what we can know is true. Right, and then also because uh, if you don't know someone, and one of the easiest ways to do it is to make assumptions. And mm -hmm. um, I guess it wouldn't be uh, hard to conclude that those assumptions would also technically be lies under the guise of this uh, metaphor. In the right. sense that like, those are also very uh, predacious in the sense that it's like, not necessarily a lie as much as a false truth. With assumptions, you're essentially talking about an internal information ecology, just what is in your head, kind of what you've got stored up. Okay. Um, you can take this to any level. Um, yeah. All right. And so, like, now there's an interesting kind of web of the inside, like, your personal information ecology and how that contributes to the, your, the societal global ecology, mm -hmm. information ecology. All yeah. Right. Yeah, cool, cool. Just make sure I have my terms right. So, how, and, I mean, how long would you say has this, like, existed? I would assume uh, ever since, like, human communication, right? I would say, yeah, an information ecology at the societal level ha is really the technology. We've always had an internal information ecology. That's kind of where our biology is is prevalent. But yeah. as soon as we go outside that, as soon as we go to the human construct of society, we're talking about information ecologies. Now, information ecologies are perfectly fine when they're created from the ground up, but they suffer when one of two things happens. Either one information ecology meets another, or there is a rapid change in the size of the information ecology, either from really large to really small, or really small to really large. So as a great example of this, if we look at the internet boom, uh, the internet. this is the perfect example of our information ecology going from what you know locally, 
Um, and even through the 50s and 60s and, and industrialization to the boom of understanding the world in terms of the news that's coming in, and then the internet where within minutes we understand everything if we want to, or we may understand nothing. Okay. And what we haven't appreciated is the impact that that has. We haven't talked about, okay, well, we have a new size for information ecology. Have we actually tried to start building this from the ground up? Have we actually tried to structure our ecology? Or did we take the haphazard ecology of you know the previous society mm-hmm. and just blow it up until it's almost going to pop? All right. And so I'm assuming that like your master plan uh, agrees with that theory that there is a way to build it from the bottom up. Yes. All right. Um, and, and, but there are, there are actually several ways. There's just one that is the most difficult, but also doesn't cause other problems. Before we get to that, the other one that I want to approach is the, uh, the side of the information ecology that meets another information ecology. This is right. where we can understand the divides in terms of uh, religion and other differences that where the fundamental ideologies of two societies don't agree. They don't mesh. Uh, yeah. This is n- primarily seen in the what we would call the East-West divide, to use the kind of arcane term, um, between more Eastern philosophies and Western philosophies. Western philosophies are focused um, on nation-states, they're focused on individuals, uh, and in terms of conflict. You see this reflected in their narratives. You know, narratives from Western societies are about... Um, they don't. They aren't about necessarily external conflict. They always necessitate some kind of conflict between people caused by people, and if there is an environmental conflict, that environment is personified either through magic, through God, or through some other mystic force. Okay. In the case of Eastern philosophy, that kind of mystic force doesn't have to exist. There can be sudden change um, that is characterized but not personified as evil against which there is some kind of resistance. That difference um, changes how conflicts have happened in these areas. So if we look at the western side of the world for a majority of western history, we see histories taught in terms of this nation went to war with this nation. This king was mad at this king, married this king's daughter, and you know they had and a child. Blah, blah, this blah. person. Exactly. Okay. But if we look at the history of, say, China, um, we see a, we see several dynasties who had to reconcile many different groups of people and lots of internal conflict, but almost virtual complete isolation from the outside world except from the occasional visitor from, say, the Roman Empire or so. Right. So that difference changes the structure today, the right. structure of the information ecology today. And now with that interconnectivity, and the interconnectivity creates uh, economic interconnectivity, um, and political interconnectivity, but the, the core of it is that their information, their ideologies, the information and ideas that they have access to came together. They've clashed, but they've mm. not been reconciled. All right, okay, so it's pretty much uh, going back to your um, metaphor of the weapons that are used in a information ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Uh, this clash has kind of just been an ongoing war that has been rectified. In. Right. It's okay. like we took a say a desert animal and a an arctic animal and we put them together in a temperate climate mm. and said try to win that, that that's ridiculous right yeah, well yeah, this yeah. this construct of trying to put these together like this is also equally yeah okay uh, and ridiculous. so like 
I mean, of course, with that, you could pick sides based off of your own individual information ecology, mm-hmm. but um, at the end of the day, it's a fairly a trivial argument. Exactly. Okay. I understand. And so, now we get into, I guess, kind of, uh, not even phase two, but the next step of your plan in, in the sense of how do we rectify that kind of battle? Right. So... To rectify it, this, the movement must be societal. And the movement needs to figure out what, uh, what are the elements that are hindering progress on this front. So um, what are the societal elements that maintain the status quo? Mm-hmm. Um, and what of those societal elements are insidious and which ones just need some restructuring? Um, I think it would be appropriate to address the most insidious things first. We tend to handle bigger problems first. So first comes to the problem of, uh, I would say, scarcity. Um, One of the ways that hierarchies and differences are justified in society are through scarcity, through difference in resources, difference in work. Mm -hmm. Um, Effectively, as an example, when the British Empire was expanding. London society was living very well. Um, And what we do know is that explorers came back having discovered different regions of the world, and they effectively presented the the monarchy with two options. Option one, uh, London society changes its ways, and the British Empire, everyone lives relatively equally at the same standard of living throughout the world, or... London society does not change, and the rest of the world becomes subservient to that society. The crown. To the crown. Well, being Americans, we all know how that went. Yeah. Um, So we have to look at scarcity and say, is scarcity a thing that dictates supply and demand, that dictates what people can have, or is it really just a method by which people at the top... Mm. are maintaining the status quo. And, and so this idea, this, 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 there's a foundation, let's look at a foundational idea in our information ecology. Foundational idea, the harder you work, the more you earn. Right. Okay, that foundational idea is actually flawed. Mm-hmm. The reason that that exists is that we had to find some way to reconcile the need for a structure so that more people can have more than others. Right. So we create an economy. We, we create economy, and so we all live lives of excess here in this country, even, even those who do poorly, and poverty is a huge problem in this country. Um, but even then, there's, there's always one step below. There's always a hierarchy, right? right. And so first always... we, have to dispense, we have to dispense with the idea of scarcity and dispense with the idea of excess. And to do that, I come to kind of my first societal uh mandate mandate or first societal suggestion yes or problem (laughs) okay uh or you know an idea at the core of the information ecology this is desire okay that you can want something and have it if you work work for it um we see lots of problems with desire all the time all right and so just to make sure i have this right that's essentially the uh dissolvement of the american dream uh Sure, if you want to call the American dream a dream. Well, all right. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I, I want to... 
The, the American dream states that anyone from the bottom can reach the top through hard work. Okay. What I want is for us to say, you know what, no, not anyone can reach the bottom from the top with hard work. And in fact, the people at the top didn't work hard for it. And in fact, the people who are at the top by one standard or another... Aren't at the top. Aren't, aren't necessarily. There are other people at the top who just don't desire as much. They found other forms of fulfillment, mm-hmm. and we don't recognize that here. We don't recognize that societally. So, so the core foundational idea, desire, this idea that you can want something, and if you want want something, insofar as your needs are fulfilled, you can have it. Um, so, that core. We mentioned before the second core that I talk about is untruthfulness. Mm-hmm. So we talked about that with poisoning the information right. ecology, and this is all going to intertwine very closely. Okay, so getting rid of all the lies and deceit. Exactly. Okay. And, and so if we treat each of these as lies, untruthfulness should be one of these foundational pillars. We need to come up with truthfulness. Now, truthfulness is critical, um, but it is not the same as truth. I think this is an effort that we need to embody. Okay, Our so. personal information ecologies we need to acknowledge as flawed. But truthfulness truthfulness means contributing to the broader information ecology everything that is is in our information ecology. It is okay. saying so like uh, just dump like yeah all the all that you are in order to in order for the betterment of society yeah or just like just for society it's like, it's like you wrap up everything in your head give it to society it's like this is for you. Yeah. Okay. Or you know it is it is the antithesis of Dickinson's tell the truth but tell it slant. Ah. Right, where you're telling what you know but maybe you are concealing certain elements or you're using stilted tones to hide what you mean. Yeah. That is not truthfulness. Even if you, you can speak an entire sentence of truth. Right, but the, it depends on how you say it. But it depends on how you say it. And it depends so, on how you present it. Going back to the present analogy, it's basically just like you give it to society, but it has like a really fancy wrapping on it. Yes. Got it. Okay. So you're saying that we, when we do um, contribute ideas to society, we should do it plainly. It should just be in a box, no fancy ribbons, bows, or felt, pretty mm-hmm. much. I follow. So um, when it comes to that desire... Uh, just just quickly, we look at it and we say, okay, yes, yes, there are many forms of desire, there are many forms of success, but let's actually acknowledge the real success for once. You know, the real success in this country, the one that we actually tend to value, is economic success. It's having a yacht, you know, it, it, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so when we look at that, let's, let's actually look at who succeeds there. Um, it tends to be the people who not only desire, not only excel at desiring, uh, not only excel at telling lies, at being untruthful, but they are detached. Mm. Um, they're, they are detached from other forms of fulfillment. Um, so I tend to wrap this under the term ruthlessness, kind of the third pillar here. So we've got desire, we've got untruthfulness, and we've got ruthlessness. Okay. So ruthlessness is a trait that we see in lots of fortune 500 ceos you hear this um pseudo myth that fortune 500 ceos are all psychopaths right psychopaths make up about one percent of the population sociopaths make up about five percent these are people born with an inability to empathize sociopaths are a little bit different they can form some personal connections with people and it is true that there is a higher percentage of sociopaths and psychopaths as you go up the chain but they aren't 
they're such a comparatively small portion of the population that they actually cannot account for all the Fortune 500 CEOs. They cannot account for all the, not even Fortune 500, but all the CEOs. Okay, that makes statistical sense. Yeah, so what we say then is, okay, maybe they're not psychopaths. Maybe they're not psychologically messed up. But there is some validity to the claim that they emulate the behavior of psychopaths. And so does this go back to your sense of that uh, they have a single desire which outweighs any other desire? Yes. Okay. And they will do anything for it. They'll they'll poison the information ecology to morph it and make it fit. Mm. Um, now, the way that we could maybe think about the information ecology a little bit differently in terms of the way they think about it, if they were to conceptualize an information ecology, is that their lies are not poison. Their lies are drugs. They're uh-huh. pharmaceutical drugs. They are okay. modifying the structure, you okay. know, to fit their needs. In some cases, that is still poison. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, and, you know, I... I I believe in pharmaceutical drugs. I don't yeah. have a problem with them. But you know what? It doesn't work for information ecology. It doesn't work for telling the truth and, and being truthful with each other. So they tend to be ruthless. They tend to be detached. And we notice that a detachment uh, goes straight back to that same stranger danger thing I talked about earlier, right? A detachment from oh, okay. others allows you to desire to harder. desire harder, to be to lie more easily. Um, and and just to regard others as beneath you, mm-hmm. um, and you know I've experienced some of this stuff firsthand. Oh. I've had an encounter with uh, at least two psychopathic people in my life. One of okay. whom attempted, one of whom uh, verifiably attempted to hurt me, mm-hmm. um, and at the very least made me feel unsafe. Um, now I've gotten past that, of course, but I've watched. What he, what he did, what what led to that point, um, and it was an obsessive desire mm-hmm. that was with usually academic achievement, which is why we butted heads. It was constant lies. He would berate you with lies until you couldn't keep up. You would have to be on Google all day, mm-hmm. just fact checking everything. Okay, right. I mean, Politico couldn't keep up with this, <laughs> and he was pretty ruthless and ultimately when it when we broke it down uh it was pretty pathetic you know it's it was that's fair i mean like you were essentially became like the apple of his eye right in the sense that his sole purpose in life was to either one up and eventually hurt you exactly you know he defined himself that way and the whole time he didn't realize that if he just opened up to a little bit of empathy from the people around him... He would have ended up having like a way better relationship. Exactly. And, and s- possibly wouldn't have ruined his life. Mm, yeah. And so, I guess in that sense, uh, in an attempt to, uh, his, to get his information ecology out, like his uh, biological warfare and weapons like into the public to affect you, mm-hmm. he ended up poisoning himself and his own information ecology. Exactly. Yes. So, and this is what we do to ourselves every right. time. He's just an extreme example because in every game you play, there are winners and losers. And I don't, in some of these games, consider there to be winners, just people who haven't lost yet. Mm. Um, you know, there are some people who get as far as Elizabeth Holmes did with uh, the, um, God, what was her name? Thera. Thera. 
she had a drug company that claimed to do little finger prick blood tests that could tell you anything. Ah. Um, she was notorious for the fact that she lowered her voice to appear more... Uh, masculine. Mas- not just masculine, but it doesn't really make much sense. Foreboding was, I think, what she was going for. But again, this is a lie. This is something that doesn't make much sense to rational people. Okay. You know, people who lower their voice in order to sound more official just end up sounding ridiculous. Right. It's a parody. It's a parody, but these people take it seriously because mm-hmm. they're, they've detached from that kind of... You know, parody and comedy is derived from suffering. It's derived from being on the outside and observing inward. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're going to be ruthless, it's, if you're going to be a detached, you're not actually on the outside looking inward. You're inside and you're huddled up and you're close. And you're looking and outward. You're looking outward and you're separated in that regard. Okay. Um, which is, I think, why you know the most, the, the largest and most successful truth tellers of our age right now are the comedians. Yeah. You know, people wonder why the comedians are the ones telling us the news. Well, that's because they're the people on the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. And we've let the people on the inside looking out dictate the news for a long time. Yeah. And so that's why the comedians are good at this. Um, so it's that ruthlessness that we have to weed out. And if we look at society, we can see some of those psychopathic elements encouraging success. Pseudo-psychopathic elements. Pseudo-psychopathic elements, yeah. true enough. Um, and along with that, you know, we need to trust each other. Mm-hmm. I think another element of our current society that I, that, you know, another one of these elements is distrust. Right. We inherently distrust someone unless there's a quid pro quo. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's built on all of this. I think that's built on the untruthfulness of other people. And this is the problem. A society built on the values that I would like to see. This is what makes it so quixotic, so perfect for your podcast. Oh, yes, of course. The, vo- the values that I'd like to see, they're unfortunately hard to achieve when one person tries to poison it. Mm. Because our present society does have one advantage, and that's that it has that this distrust that it has, which I see as problematic, is its immune system. Right? We approach everything with skepticism. We approach everything with, well, what are you, what are you getting of out of this? A grain of salt, and that helps us weed out the lies. And we think we can keep doing that. But as the information ecology grows and expands, we can't. I mean, yeah, salt loses flavor if you use too much of it. Fair enough. (laughs) So, uh, I guess at that point, going back to our information ecology metaphor, um, the public, I guess, the societal information ecology in itself is already poisoned. Yes. Very much so. Yes. Okay. And it's um, because of that, that like, in order to reshape it, it's weird that when you're giving uh, your information ecology to the society, when you're giving your box, it's being treated as a disease. Mm-hmm. It's being treated as a biological weapon when it, in fact, isn't really. Yeah. And then who who's to say who gets to define what is and isn't a biological weapon? Right. I mean, now we get filtering. We Now we get what, uh, you know, in the information ecology sense, what is systematic oppression? It is treating certain people's perspectives, certain people's truths, as poison. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. Um, then the next, you know, the next bastions of society go into well, how does a society deal with people 
once it finds poison. Um, it's cancelled, I believe, right? Yeah, it gets cancelled, but the methods are important. Mm-hmm. And I see two methods, and each of these are distinct from each other, actually. Violence and vengeance. Mm. Um, so violence is naturally any kind of oppressive state apparatus. Uh, literally the attempt to kill people, to silence the information ecology, to ultimately murder the information ecology, right? That That's, that's how we deal with it. And sometimes... Um, Sometimes it works. Sometimes we have silenced a person who is truly dangerous to our information ecology. Where it gets insidious is where the violence is then used in a kind of cyclical fashion back to poison the information ecology. Right. um, To cause that systematic oppression and use the distrust against us. We see this cycle that I just don't see reconciling itself. Mm -hmm. Um... And similarly, with vengeance, this is another extension of the quid pro quo. This is where the quid pro quo is suspended in time, right? When we're talking about desire, we're talking about quid pro quos that are immediate, right? You have money, I have object, we trade. That's an immediate quid pro quo. A quid pro quo in time is I transgress in some way with you oh no and then sometime later you decide to transgress on you yes to uh to poison the information college right an in exchange of violence exactly uh, i believe that's a very draconian concept right an eye for an eye in a sense exactly yeah um and 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 vengeance takes the form of poison in the information ecologies pretty often I mean, we look even at uh, Shakespearean works and we see, which we, you know, all call timeless, and we see these kinds of vengeful stories and we relate to them um, and they often derive themselves directly from the lies of somebody in power. Um, And then I think the ultimate transgression and a a societal foundation that pretends it's not a foundation uh, is destruction. Mm-hmm. This is the principle of revolution. The principle that, you know, according to the Second Amendment, we should be able to create a militia, rise up against the federal government, and take it over if yeah, we deem it unjust. Whatever we want. Exactly. But instead, we use that to go to Area 51 and meme around for a bit. Exactly. Or, or we use it, in fact, to support. The Republican institution, which at this point is far more of an oppressive state apparatus than really any other portion of the federal government, mm-hmm. um, in spite of its, you know, batting this batting this amendment. So destruction is is that belief in revolution and that belief of tearing down to build up uh, and and create something new and better, which is why my solution is so. Difficult, and we'll get to it in just a minute. Okay. But it requires reform, mm-hmm. not violent revolution. It's so easy to destroy the information ecology. You know, it it would it is it is hard. It is difficult. Mm-hmm. But compared to the other solutions we have, you know, if we go down this this list of um, of societal bastions, we can use each of them to come up with a fix for society. Mm-hmm. You know, if we look at desire. 
All right, so if I use desire as my method of fixing, then I'm going to find something to want. I'm going to go for political office, and I'm going to try to reform it there. That's kind of the first easiest way of changing society, and it's not going to do enough. None of these are going to do enough unless you go really deep. Um, if we go with untruthfulness, okay, so maybe instead I'm going to present a narrative. Maybe I'll found a religion or write a book that presents my poisoned view of society, okay. and I'm going to try to influence it that way. And we see that very frequently in history. Mm -hmm. um, with ruthlessness, okay, I'll detach. I'll resort to some kind of maybe business strategy. I will become a machine and attempt to take it over and use the machinations of my creation to subvert everything. Okay. Um, if we look at distrust, okay, I'm not going to trust anyone. I'm going to go dark. I'm going to try to collect all the information. Well, that doesn't do anything. That doesn't right. achieve anything. Yeah, and there's only so much that one person can do anyway. Exactly. Which is exactly the problem with the other um, pillars. Exactly. And, and then, okay, so I'll resort to violence. Mm -hmm. Well, this is where, this is actually where the whole school violence mentality comes from. It's, we have an institution, the alt-right, that is generating a lot of young white men who are very angry about things, except they're all in this riled stupor, and they don't have anything to do with it. They don't have an owl, or at least they don't see that they have an owl. And I don't sympathize with them. I, I'm not like, oh, these poor guys don't have an out. I mean, they're the ones who got into white supremacy in the first place. True. But at the same time, they're resorting to a solution. And they are presenting a solution, a violent one. Um, okay, then how about we go with vengeance? Oh, yeah. So what? You join our military and you decide to take vengeance against the information ecologies you don't like. You try to, uh, you know, you go and you wage a war against the Islamic world. Mm -hmm. And you create an even more dangerous information ecology called the Islamic State. And yay that the ISIS leader just got killed, you know, but, but still we have a poisonous information ecology that is left behind in his wake. Um, and it will always be there. And that's because of the vengeance of our country. And finally destruction. Okay, that doesn't work. Let's recruit a bunch of people. Let's do a revolution. Woohoo. Yeah. Total. Just look at the Soviet Union for right. just two minutes. <laughs> just Wikipedia for a second. It isn't going to work. So those are the sound, the societal bastions, and those are the thing, the sources of the present solutions, and they underpin everything, but they're not sufficient. Which I believe leads you into your kind of linchpin to this argument. Mm -hmm. So what I am looking to do is create a society based purely in empathy and who is and whose resources are truly based in supply and demand. And to do that, and this is what makes it quixotic, I need to convince a group of people without immediately pushing them to action. So the first step is selection. Um, I it's an ongoing project to select people not who are disinterested mm -hmm. right there there are people who are going to always disengage from this and I'm not interested in working with them I'm not interested in engaging in engaging the disengaged um, then there are people who seek too much power they embody these societal bastions and they need to they need to 
experience the restructuring to see the, the truth of it. But there's this group, this group selected from the middle. Mm-hmm. And they are the ones we trust. And effectively, I want them to live in society, going along with the same societal structures, but first upholding the bastions of the new society. You know, if we say, okay, desire, I will desire less. Untruthfulness, I will be truthful. Ruthlessness, I will try to engage and empathize with everyone I know. Mm-hmm. Distrust, I will give people the benefit of the doubt. Violence, I will resort to peaceful uh, I'll resort methods. to nonviolence. Yeah, resort to nonviolence. Vengeance, I will not seek vengeance. Don't be spiteful. Don't be spiteful. Destruction, I will attempt to create. I, my goal will be creation. So these are the things I want people to embody. And I already think that that will help. Then, I want a, or, or I would like to see a fundamental restructuring on a day when I have enough people selected from the middle. We've reached the maximum. We do a great flip, and we say, "Okay, we've stopped desiring. There are things we don't need. There are things we don't want. What if we can approach the problems from a new perspective? What if instead of using the economic monetary systems that we do right now. Instead, we give every resource a score based on how much of it is there is in the world and how much of it people need. Mm-hmm. Money claims to represent the scarcity of an item. But Money we, claims to be that score. But it isn't because it doesn't actually do the math. There's always profit involved. and it. So there's always kind of a step up in profit up the ladder. Mm-hmm. And we all know about this whole idea of economies of scale. If we look at Amazon, right, or we look at other large companies who race to build out a huge network because then they're so big they can't fail. Mm-hmm. Well, that just proves to us that the monetary value that they have, because they've been valued really highly the whole time, is not representative of the supply and demand that they're actually experiencing. It's an untruthfulness there. So on that day of the flip, we are going to have to engage in a scoring system and a fundamental restructuring of the way labor is done. Um, which is why I need people not to immediately jump to action, right? right? If we did this tomorrow, if we eliminated money, if we eliminated desire, we're going to have a bunch of people living in mansions, mm-hmm. and nobody's going to be able to get food from the store. Right. <laughs> like, it's just not practical. But over time, if we can first prepare ourselves, and I give us until 2060 before we're hopeless as a species, um, if we give ourselves 20 years' time, to prepare for that kind of change by seriously analyzing supply and demand chains, deciding what we need culture to culture, and opening our information ecology, then we can restructure how we get things. And instead of approaching possessions as items we attain as a result of our work, you know, it's, you know, because right now the quid pro quo is your life for your work. Mm-hmm. Your, your work is separated from your life. If you do work, then you can live. If you don't do work, then you get to die. You get to die. <laughs> yes. And we pretend like this is fair. Mm-hmm. Well, we were born into this. 
but there was no contract we signed at birth, and the social contract idea is, you know, wrong. It's kind of archaic, yeah. Yeah. So let's just acknowledge that, and then let's flip. Hmm. Well, I mean, all things considered, that's a fairly well-lined-out plan. Um, one problem. It kind of sounds like a cult. And maybe this, this might just be because of me being on the outside looking in, but, like, everything that you described, especially with the sense of, like, collecting a mass of people, it, it sounds just, just a bit culty. And right. I guess that might be what you're talking about in the sense that it's fairly quixotic. I it, mean, it is, it is, it is a cult. Oh! I mean, let's, let's acknowledge this, right? You know who I am. You know what I do on this campus. I run a fictional cult that worships a fictional alien. Uh, yes, and the reason the, uh... that I do that is I'm emulating the effects of a cult. I'm saying, look at all the ridiculousness, and I'm trying to find the core value that makes a cult work. Except the difference between a cult and me is that I'm not seeking power over people. Right? My idea requires that I am not any more significant than any other member of the movement. In a cult, there's always a requirement for there to be this head leader to tell everyone how to live their lives. Well, I'm not here to tell you like how to live your life and then enforce that. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you nature is dic- and, and our you know our desires are dictating how we live and we aren't living within those bounds. I'm here to point that out. Mm-hmm. I'm the person who's pointing that out. It could have been anyone else, but I'm the guy who's doing it. That's fair. And I know that I'm right after analysis here. Okay. And if if you don't want to follow me, like that's fine. That's uh, that's right. Like, right, exactly. right? That's I'm really... not going to come after you because one of our pillars is non-vengeance, non-violence. And you're right? also not looking for people who won't follow you. I mean, it's also fairly convenient that in order for this to work, like, one of your pillars is uh, truthfulness. People have to trust you. People do have to trust you. And not take yeah. you at face value. And, and, you know, and then I have other structures that I'm putting in place. Uh-huh. You know, I'm very open about this. I have other structures that are checking and balancing me, and I keep those discreet and hidden because those I don't want those structures corrupted. You know, I, I, I have a person... And I've grown that now to two who watch my behavior in this organization and say, Hey, yeah, that's a bit too hey, far. Hey, that, that's a little, or why are you using your power in, in that way? Mm-hmm. You know, because it's really, it's really easy to get drunk on power and absolutely no one in this world is immune to the effects of power. So you have people that are checking you for discreet um, systems that are, unbeknownst to the people who are also in this pseudo cult? Uh yes. They uh, are they are discreet from it and they are they are not part of it. They are not part of the cult. They've sworn themselves off of it and they're actually a member of the disinterested party. Ah, uh, okay. And so now uh, still there is a separation. Sure. Yes. Right. Okay. So that's like is that not two of the things that you were just talking about because now you're not you're not being 100% truthful to the people who you are leading and you see uh, what no, I mean well and and but the thing is how much do you, I mean do I have to be fully truthful and this is why I said difference between truthful and truth do I have to be okay. fully truthful to tell you the person's name no if I tell you these are the two people they called me out on this if I'm telling you everything they're telling me and exactly what they're doing 
and they're being truthful with me, the only piece of missing information here is their name. Uh-huh. It's just their name. And I don't I do that for their safety because we're living in an information ecology that is poisonous to people like me and poisonous to people like them. So in order to in order to remedy the poison the information ecology, you have to learn how to make poison. Yeah, exactly. And and but I'm not I'm not saying, oh, well, there's these discrete entities and they told me about this thing I shouldn't do, but I can't tell you what that is. Uh-huh. But I tell I tell the people in this organization every time when I overstepped my bounds, you know, and I tell them every time to tell me if they're uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, that's a well-vetted system. I mean, you've always been thinking about this for a while now. Um, I mean, I guess since we're here, you want to plug your pseudo cult? <laughs> I mean, I, I can't because, oh, it, right, because right, I, right. I do it via, I, I do it specifically via the connections that people have directly. Ah, right, right. Okay, that makes sense. And, and I talk about this openly um, because, you know, again, it's, it's all about truthfulness here, yeah, right? And, and this is not about just platforming. I'm not here to platform my organization. I'm here to platform my project. Mm-hmm. What's important to me is the project of change here. What's important to me is uh, fixing this. And if that means going on to a friend's podcast and communicating it, that's what it means. If that means creating an organization that works toward this, that's what it means. If that means creating checking and balancing, that's also what it means. And if that just means telling everybody that I can about this and getting them to kind of see what I'm seeing, Mm -hmm. that's what it means. Hmm. It seems you have a really big desire for this. (laughs) <laughs> and on that note uh, we've hit the 45 minute mark so you have any closing remarks for us Jackson? Uh, no I've really enjoyed this and I thank you for your time and your interest yeah thank you you were great well everyone hope you were able to follow along with that this has been the Quixotic Topic see you next time